cold as a razor blade, as tight as a tourniquet, like the skin on a dying man. I don't want a piece of the world. I want the whole world. I make my own rules because it's much easier that way. Trust me. What's up, everybody? It's Marcus D'Angelo, and we are back in the snake pit. And if you're watching us on YouTube, you can see that there's something a little bit different going on here today. That is not Jake the Snake Roberts, although the guy that's sitting there gets compared to him a lot. They both had some legendary mustaches back in the day. Uh, no, <laughs> instead, today we've got Magnum T.A. fresh off of his Dark Side of the Ring episode. Magnum, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, it is my pleasure. I, I'm Jake, and I have such a history when I found out I could... Uh, do a little fill-in for him. That was uh, even more special. Man, that's awesome. And I'm glad that you brought it up because, you know, it, it's Jake's podcast. And uh, I was wondering about your relationship with Jake or when you first met him. What can you tell us about your history with him? Well, it goes uh, it goes back to when I, I very first started. I, I, I spent a little time in Mid-South before I actually had my first match. And I was running around, running around up and down the roads with Jimmy Garvin and uh, – Buzz Sawyer's little brother and, and some other guys. And anyway, Jake was in the territory for, for a short time. And right. so we got, to, we got to see each other there for a minute. But then about a year, year, year and a half later, we both, after I started working, we both ended up in Florida. And, and, the, and the funniest thing happened to him and I both was we saw each other. So back then when we did television, very small facility there in Tampa, and I saw him talking on a monitor live as I was walking by. And it was just a, like, you know, neck up shot. And I'd like double took, I said, how, I thought I was out there. You know, I thought, <laughs> I, I mean, I glanced. And, you know, I had short hair, darker hair and, and the mustache. And I said, my gosh, the the likeness is uncanny, uh, you know, from the headshot. And uh, so we both had got a couple chuckles out of that over the years. So. Uh, and I did. I did get to work with Jake uh, a few times back then. He was tagged up with Angela Mosca and somebody else. I think part of Kevin Sullivan Band of Indians. And uh, so I got. I got to spend a little time in the ring with him, but certainly would have loved to have later on when I got to a main event status and had some more experience. So it would been it would been a lot of fun to work with him. Oh, man, that is a big what if, you know, certainly uh, you guys are both capable of, of a lot of magic in the ring. So, man, I would have loved to have seen any and all of what you and Jay could do. Um, well, you know, we mentioned Dark Side of the Ring here at the top of, this, of the show. And, uh, you know, that, that is kind of what we're going to be covering today. And I did want to know, you know, had you seen any of what Dark Side of the Ring had done prior to them uh, reaching out to you? Yeah, oh, I had. And it took me two years, I think it was to even talk to them because I had seen, I had seen some things uh, that they weren't the most flattering, I guess I could just say of some of my friends and, and the, and the tone, I just didn't ever want my career to be looked upon as a dark side of anything because certainly it was, it was a devastating uh, premature end to a career but it didn't define my whole life. And I wanted to make sure if we told the story and you, of course you're encapsulated in, you know, 40 some minutes of airtime, uh, you know, one of those shows that it, uh, you know, it didn't take a, a twisted turn that I couldn't see because I didn't see the finished product till everybody else did. So I had no, no idea what it was going to you know, look like at the end of the day, other than, you know, the producers were very, uh, accommodating and gracious and did everything they could to, to make me feel good about it. And told me from the beginning, they wanted it to be different than things they'd done in the past. They wanted to be able to tell a story that had a positive turn. And uh, so, you know, all in all, that was, that was, uh, you know, what they gave me at the end of the day. That was a lot of the feedback that I had heard was everybody was like, man, it was a great episode. It was very different from from what they're they're usually up to on Dark Side of the Ring, where it's not, you know, it's not like they're actively burying guys, but they are just focusing on some of the uh, the more difficult times in people's lives. And, you know, and unfortunately, from a ratings perspective, you know, most people 
you know, want to want to know the car wreck or do they want to know the travesty. They want to know the drama and the things that took place behind the scenes. And and we certainly were a great subject matter for that because we lived as crazy a lifestyle as, as any human being could have uh, you know, back back during our heydays. And uh, those of us that were lucky enough to survive it, you know, we got we got a lot of stories and a lot of things we probably take to our grave. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, uh, I was fortunate enough to, uh, so this is for our, our company or rather the network that we're with is called adfreeshows.com. And, uh, we just had a big event down in, um, Huntsville, Alabama. And I just returned from that today at noon. And I was fortunate enough last night to spend some time with David Crockett. And I had mentioned to him that I was going to be speaking with you today. And man, he uh, he had some stories to tell. And I'm sure it was just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> well, he was right there in the thick of it with us. Uh, him and his brother both you know, were uh, very hands-on people and were at live events with us and, and part of the, the crazy aftermath parties that took place and whatnot. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, we none of us would have survived in a modern era. We were like the last of a breed of outlaws that wasn't being under the microscope and having to be politically correct. And, uh, you know, there was no cancel culture back then, or we'd have probably all been hung in public. <laughs> um, and, and thank goodness there's no, you know, cell phones back in those days. Some of the video that people could have been recording, whew. Huh. No, My it, goodness. It, it's, I mean, when I, I laugh when I, you know, hear, Oh, you know, this happened to this one or this got exposed here because of that and blah, 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 blah. I'm thinking, man, seven days a week, you could, you could, I mean, everybody on the whole roster could have been completely upside down in in a nanosecond. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, was there anything, any like meat left on the bone um, at at the end of it? So like uh, you watched it back. Let's start here. You watched it back. Did you enjoy it? I did enjoy it. and, And the only the only thing that like jumped out in my mind, because they were they they recreated so many really cool things and did such a great job, they and they researched and came up with things that I didn't even know would be available for something like this, because uh, you know Vince owns all the libraries and everything else, so I didn't know what they'd better get in terms of footage. But the belt scene where Flair comes in and gives me the belt, it wasn't the big gold belt; it was a ten pounds of gold belt. It was a, oh. the, it was the the original you know, the Harley race, Dory Funk, that belt. And that's the one he came and laid on my chest in the hospital. Wow. So they had it depicted as the big gold. And I told them the 10 pounds of gold, thinking that acronym would identify it, but they didn't, they didn't, they didn't know the, the inside uh, twist of, Oh no, the NWA belt was the, that, that was the unicorn. That's what everybody wanted to, to uh, achieve when, when being the world's heavyweight champion really meant, that you had the backing of everybody in the alliance to let you represent the company as their champion. So it was a huge recognition back in the eighties to have a chance to have a run with that title. Man, that is, uh, that is an interesting fact. And really in my head, when I saw the big gold on that, I was like, Oh, that makes sense. Cause that was the, you know, they were using the NWA title at the time, but to your point, man, everybody loves and respects that 10 pounds of gold belt. Um, I've actually heard Hulk Hogan say that that's a regret of his where he wishes he would have held that belt at some point. So, man, that tells you yeah. just how respected it is. Yeah, it puts you in a very respected lineage of people that, you know, there's just no way to 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 measure that in today's time and standards. I mean, like I said, Dory, Dory Funk and Jack Briscoe and, and Dusty and, and Flair. I mean, it, it's just, you know, it, it was a classic piece of history. And it's what we really based our whole rivalry with the WWF back then uh, in that they were a federation and they didn't have the lineage that we had and the background we had all the way back to 1903 or 04, however far back we trace all that. And uh, it, so it was a historical you know, monument almost to, to the business that we all loved and were so passionate about. And frankly, uh, if if you weren't aspiring to be the world champion, uh, you really didn't belong in the business because everybody should have wanted to have the greatest recognition uh, that they possibly could. And, and back in the 80s, that was what it was. Absolutely. Now, I do have to ask, do you are you still in possession of that belt that Flair gave to you? I had it for for many years. 
And and one night, uh, Rick's ex-wife Beth came over to my house while I was out of town, and and uh, obscured it from my house, and uh, said that uh, you know Rick had young he had kids of his own, and she wanted to be able to pass it along to to like to read. And uh, anyway, it caused some a little hiccup in my world because it was a uh, uh, you know I, I hadn't. I had gone on my way to ask for that and it was given and it meant, you know, it, it meant a lot. And I, I'm sure at the time that, that he did all that, they didn't know if I was going to live or not. I mean, they just didn't really know first 30 days. It was very touch and go. So it was an emotional thing. I'm sure had he been having to play the tape all the way through, he might've said, well, that could, that could bite me somewhere. Right. But, uh, you know, I think it's sitting up in, uh, in Connecticut somewhere a WWE office. Yeah, I had it in a shadow box on my wall for years. Now that I think of it, I do believe that Triple H is in possession of that belt now. So is what it is, man. That belt, my goodness, very historic, really prestigious, and probably worth a small fortune at this point. Yeah, I'd say it's a six-figure belt for sure. Um, well, you know, something else that a lot of people were really talking about a lot after following uh, the dark side of the ring. Uh, I saw it all over social media was uh, what had happened between you and Buzz Sawyer, uh, him skipping town with the money from your grandfather. Uh, what can you tell us about your future interactions with Buzz as you continue to work with him following all that? Well, I mean, obviously, I, I drove 3000 miles to find him and, uh, and and have a face to face with him. And my intent wasn't to go there and uh, have a physical confrontation, but I was certainly prepared for it to be that if that's what it turned into. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it didn't. And, uh, you know, he, he's, he's still, it wasn't the way I'm sure he envisioned any of it was going to play out, but he ended up being the one to open the door. And I, I worked out in a, in a ring in Portland with him, his little brother, I'm not sure his little brother was there or not, but but Princess Victoria, a female wrestler, and I worked out in the ring with them for about two hours and just learned the very basics. And the very next night, I wrestled Buzz on TV, and uh, and he had told he had told the promoter Don Owens that I had been working for Bill, but they didn't talk evidently back then because I hadn't worked for anybody. I'd never been in the ring. But that one day for two hours, and I got booked every day, then then on out for as long as I was there. So, you know, he kind of started off on the wrong foot and certainly uh, did not do the right thing right out of the gate. But really, it's without Buzz Sawyer, uh, who knows where your career could have ended up? Oh, absolutely. And, and I knew that it was I knew I had to go learn the ropes. I didn't want to I didn't want to start out in what was then mid-Atlantic and, and just be, you know, somebody aspiring climbing the ladder when i came home i wanted to be i wanted to have achieved the main event status uh in in the industry so my my thought process from the get-go was to go somewhere and and learn the trade and learn the craft but i didn't have any idea i'd drive all the way coast to coast to to do it man that's that's what they call passion (laughs) i don't know a lot of people willing to do that well it's it's uh it's a sacrificial business to begin with. You you give up of yourself a lot of things that people take for granted about things they can do with their time and spend with their families and, and whatnot. You end up, you're married to the business anyway you look at it. You know, we were going seven days a week. We're on the road sometimes 60 and 90 days at a time. And uh, it, it was, uh, it was, it, it was a situation where you, you grew to, despise the travel, but you love the performance part of it so much and enjoyed that time in the ring and being able to, to, uh, you know, be awarded or and rewarded by the, the fans that them reciprocating, enjoying what you did. It was like, it was like a, almost like a euphoric drug kind of thing. If you stand in the middle of a ring and 10, 20,000 people out there screaming so loud, you can't even hear anything it, it turns silent is so loud that uh there's nothing i've ever been able to do in my life that's replicated what that experience was like so i i know why flair and these guys that were you know able to perform way past their their physical prime 
couldn't hang it up because they, they didn't know what else to do. And there was nothing to replace that with. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Hey guys, Tony Schiavone. Need to call a timeout real quick. Wanted to tell your listeners what I've been telling what happened when listeners for a while now about all the cool things happening over on adfreeshows.com. On a new edition of The Insiders, Conrad sits down with former Turner Finance executive Dirty Dick Cheatham, talking about the internal war between WCW and Turner and the Monday Night War with the WWF. And my assistant said, hey, you're not going to believe who's down there. I said, who, who? She says, China's down there. This, what are you talking about? Yeah. And, uh, and I went over to her window and looked at her. Hey, the whole, all the eggs is down there. Get the camera. <laughs> so, so we went down there. And of course, there were eggs and that was down there in the fight with security. On a bonus episode of My World, Double J watches back his tag team championship match against FTR and breaks down the hilarious Briscoe farm skit that preceded it. And they say, can y'all be in the background talking? And the four of us are down there, really, just you know, all four of us. But Lethal and Sanjay, I said, we got to start being silly. I just started strumming the guitar, and Sanjay <laughs> started bouncing that baby, and Sanjay and him started doing the dose to dough. I think this is, I don't know, this is the funniest, but I still think it's, it's, a, hilarious. it's a complete ad lib, but it played to, you know, the line he said, them clowns, and we're down there dancing. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. That's just a small taste of what we got waiting for you. With four levels to choose from, see for yourself why Ad Free Shows is the best value in wrestling today. Sign up now at adfreeshows.com. Right. And, you know, a lot of guys, as, as we all know, would go on to try and replace it with alcohol, drugs, women. Um, and, you know, God knows that there's plenty of temptation out there on the road. And it was touched on lightly there on in, in your show. Um, so whether it is drugs, alcohol or women, I, I just I, I don't know. I can't imagine the pressure. Um, what can you tell us about the type of temptation that you were facing out there in your prime? Well, it is it is a character that you had to be comfortable in that role 24 seven. So mm-hmm. we're, we, when you can't, there's no way to compare today to yesterday because this was before kayfabe had been exposed. The legitimacy of the contest that we portrayed in the ring was protected so closely that you, I mean, you had to live vicariously through this character that you were playing, you know, 24 seven, you know, I mean, Ric Flair couldn't be, you know, the styling, high-profiling guy that he was on TBS, and then and then just be, you know, like a mouthful of sugar. I mean, Obi with no sugar, you know, <laughs> when you got in person. So he was flamboyant. He was that way twenty four seven, and and all of us that that got, you know, kind of in some groove, you know, created a, a following of people that you know found that very appealing. You know, my deal, my deal was cursed from the beginning. Uh, I met my first wife in Tampa, and I've been in the business about, let's see, two and a half years. And I brought her, we were just still just dating. I brought her to to uh, Mid-South when I got started there and, you know, and decided that, you know, I need to, like, cool my jets a little bit. Settling down was a good idea. I'd get married. And the minute I got married, came back, came back. It was at the Superdome in New Orleans, and Bill had just seen the light of what he could do with me, and decided to make me this big sex symbol, and and took her off to the side and said, "Look, you know, just want you to know this is what we're going to do with them, and you're not going to be able to come to the matches anymore because wow. we, we don't want him portrayed as somebody that's not attainable." Yes. So, so you take that kind of hook and mix that into traveling seven days a week and all the attention that you get as a result of that. And in your twenties full of testosterone, that ain't, that doesn't play out real well, you know, at all. Yeah. That's, that's a recipe for uh, infidelity 
and you know certainly certainly drug use you know jake and i talk about it on the show a lot where it's you know when you're young and you're making good money and you're great you're in great shape and people are coming up to you and wanting to impress you and give you things for free buy you drinks maybe uh, give you some some drugs it's like man i can't imagine that pressure yeah and i you know i mean the vice for me was was certainly the the female attention as well as the fact that we drank more dusty and i drank more beer in a year than most people would in a lifetime <laughs> and, and i mean you know we we figured we were we were laughing talking about one day and, and figured out how much money we had spent just on beer because i wasn't a i wasn't a kamikaze guy and i wasn't a I definitely wasn't a cocaine guy or any of those stuff. They just didn't appeal to me. But my gosh, like my greatest fear at one time was running out of beer at 30,000 feet. <laughs> I laughed. I, I told Matt Cordetta the story the other day. Uh, I, we started on our private plane, Dusty and I started drinking Paps Blue Ribbon because nobody would want to have one of our beers. <laughs> we, wouldn't have to, we wouldn't have to share them. Everybody else would have their court light, their light, and all this stuff. And we started drinking PBR and nobody asked for one. <laughs> That's a hell of a strategy. <laughs> yeah. But, oh. but yeah, it, it, it was a, it was life, you know, in the fast lane, hanging out on the end of that lightning bolt and, and uh, soaking it all in and, and, and trying to, you know, to continually get to that next level. Uh, what would what kind of advice would you give to a young performer today when it comes to that pro wrestling lifestyle? I think I think today there's been enough awareness that that uh, first of all, unless you're, I mean, there's only you know two organizations in the country that 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 could support anybody full time. I mean, these guys that are out there working the Indies, busting it. My heart goes out to them because. Yeah, you know, they're you know they they think they're working hard, and they are working hard, but they're not working hard like when we were working 10, 11 times a week, hard. You know that that was a different thing. But you know you you got to no matter what it is, if you don't have a balance in your life, you know you can only do it so long. And and if you don't have if if you believe all the hype and and don't have any building blocks, any plans for the future, uh, you know, eventually you, you just being another one of those statistics, which, uh, you know, we've heard, you know, way too many of them. And, uh, you know, the, the depression and the things that come after, after that time. And, you know, where you've had that moment in the sun and basked in that, uh, trying to, trying to find, navigate life and find some, you know, means of, having that same kind of self-expression with, with immediate gratification back from the people that you're entertaining is really, really tough to do. And it's a, and it's a very selfish business in a lot of ways, even though you're sacrificing so much to perform, you get, you get where you just, you know, love that, you know, being in the middle of that. It's like conducting an orchestra or something and taking people up to highs and lows and, and it's you know grandest form of manipulation you you can even wrap your head around. I mean, Jake was a master of that. He was a guy that you know couldn't do those yelling and screaming promos, but could talk and tell a story and weave people into whatever you know little road he wanted to take them down. So it's such a unique art form that today you know it's obviously changed dramatically. But again, is there's no 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 any inkling of anybody's mind that anything they're watching is anything but entertainment today. So I wouldn't even know, I'd be such a fish out of water today. It wouldn't even be funny uh, because I, I just love the depiction of a, of a real fight or a real, a real battle. I mean, my, my, you know, my hats off to the athletes, the athleticism of a guy like Ricochet, for example, you know, yes. he's, he's one of the most charismatic dynamic, high-flying people that I, I've ever seen perform. And and yet it's it's so spectacular. It looks like he should be in a Marvel movie or something. But but I don't think for a minute that somebody thinks that him and whoever he would be uh in the ring with are about to really lose it with each other and you know somebody get their ass kicked. It's right. just not 
it's not that kind of vibe, you know. And I don't know that you can recreate that today, and and, and especially without the, displaying the violence and the color, you know, without getting without getting juice, you can't you can't get this visual depiction of of somebody going through something horrible, and that's right. You know, that's what it allowed you to do. A guy being in trouble, you know, um, and you're right. There is there's not that sense of urgency anymore where it's like, man, you know, this baby face is going to get absolutely killed by this by this heel unless this heel does or this baby face does something about it. Well, I mean, I came up under the Eddie Graham's philosophy of of wrestling and he taught me about psychology and, you know, what you had to do every night to reestablish who you are as a as a performer. Because he told me that no matter how many times they've seen you on television, when you hit that ring, the first five, ten minutes of that of that match, you want to reestablish all the reasons you are who you are in case there's people there that have never seen you on television. You know, you want to stay within that 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 framework in your lane and reestablish it as you, you know, go out there with whoever you're with. And then Bill Watts. I got to work made events with, and he taught me, you know, what I, I call the graduate school uh, of wrestling. But those psychologies today, though they though they could be, they could be effective and they could still be entertaining. It's like the big big companies don't even want it really to be heels and baby faces anymore. They just want it to be a bunch of characters, and you might just happen to be, you know, you might you might like this character not because they're you know, doing the right thing or anything necessarily. You just like their personality. And it's very tough to, to you know, identify with, uh, you know, storylines as a result of that. I mean, it's kind of like uh, wanting to see a John Wick movie and we know he's going to kill everything he touches, yet he's the, he's the baby face. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, I might not kill this one at the very end because, I you know, I, I go show a moment of human something in me. You know? <laughs> but, but, you know, that's what, this generation of folks are used to watching. And, and I came up with John Wayne and Charles Bronson and Clint Eastwood. And you knew who the good guy was and the bad guy was very clear cut. And that's the kind of stories we told. And I, I don't know whether, I don't know whether there's enough people out there with the patience to, to get emotionally invested with the characters to let them do that kind of thing today. I think that's it too. Uh, you know, a lot of people criticize modern wrestling, particularly AEW, for being yep spectacular matches and like really interesting matchups between guys that we know are fan, you know phenomenal athletes. But really, it's like okay, wait a minute, who's the heel? Who's the baby face? Can, tell me about this character. You know, there's no patience in storytelling and, and vignettes and building characters anymore. Which you know, back in the day, it was man that that was the whole ball of wax. You tell the story about the guy before you get him in the ring. Well, I mean, they've got Brian Danielson there. He's probably one of the best wrestlers on the planet today, and 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 Chris Jericho can still go. Yes, uh, but, but they but they also got a slew of other people that you know. I don't know that people have you know can get that emotional tie to where where they really get excited. You know what they get excited about. You know, it's just it's just uh, it's hard. I, I still watch all the product because I'm a fan. I, been watching wrestling since I was six years old. And that's how I started thinking through the wheels in my mind about maybe one day doing that. Yeah. And now, uh, have you ever considered uh, trying to see if maybe you could do creative for some promotion, whether it, it be AEW, MLW, you know, one of, even one of the indies? It, it's really, it's really not appealing unless I was able to do it on a very high level. Simply because, and, and it's not being egotistical. It's just I'm a businessman, yes. and and it would take a big organization to be able to afford what I would want to do something like that for any significant amount of time. Because I do work full time, but I've been in the telecom industry for the last twenty five plus years, and uh, and I I got a, a good job with a with a Fortune five hundred uh, company, and you know you you can't just I'm I'm 60, 64 years old. I can't just do things on a whim like I would have when I was a kid. I got too many kids of my own. I'm trying to take care of. 
<laughs> well, man, yeah. Hey, look, you know, you're, you're proof that there's life after wrestling. You know, I know a lot of guys wind up having a lot of difficulty whenever, you know, maybe the, the bright lights aren't there anymore and the bookings stop and all that sort of thing. And look, it's, if, if any of those folks are listening, look at Magnum. He, he has made it work and God almighty, what a success story. Well, I appreciate that. And, and you know, that was honestly, uh, you know, a big motivator for me. Fans helped me a lot more than they knew because I felt a, uh, I felt a real commitment to, to showing them that I wasn't going to fold and crumble after all this happened because it was overwhelming you know, 1986 to have this flood of support and not really realizing truly till that instant, the impact that what we were doing was having on people, not only just in the United States, but all over the world. And yes. I mean, it, it was, my accident was picked up on, on the, in the newspapers in Japan the next morning, you know, it was like to, it, it, it is surreal to be, in the middle of that and and also fighting for your 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 very breath uh you know at the same time and it was just a lot of a lot of pieces but i wanted to to be able to persevere and let people know with their own because we were always a, an escape for them as performers they would come and live live out you know some fantasy of theirs watching us enrolled in this bigger than life battle and yes. it helped people forget their daily troubles. And, you know, I've met people that told me about, you know, tough childhoods and, and rough homes and where wrestling, you know, was something that they just remember so fondly because it helped them cope with life that they couldn't control. But when they watched wrestling, it took them, took them to another place. So when you see so many people now genuinely behind you and a real life struggle and, and, and no, magic pencil is going to make this right. You're, you're going to have to be the hero in your own story. Then it's a little different. And I was just determined that this wasn't going to beat me. Double J, Jeff Jarrett, here to tell you a little bit about the nonstop savings happening over here at SaveWithConrad.com. Are high credit card balances holding you down on the card? If you're looking to give a guitar shot to your credit card debt or Give your home the push it deserves with some upgrades and remodeling. You need to go to SaveWithConrad.com. That's right, SaveWithConrad.com. Conrad and his team are routinely helping my world listeners save five, six, seven, even $800 a month. Oh, did I mention you get to skip your next two house payments? Take a cue from The Last Outlaw, because if anybody knows how to get the bag, it's me. Strut on over to SaveWithConrad.com today and see how much money you can save for free. That's right. It's SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Woo! Man, cool to hear you say that, especially because um, the guy I, I reached out to the guy that portrayed you in Dark Side of the Ring. His name is Megabyte Ronnie. And uh, mm-hmm. before before I move on with that, I, I do want to ask, what did you think of uh, Ronnie's performance in Dark Side of the Ring? Well, I thought it, I thought it was great. I mean, I mean... I, I thought the way they, the kind of the vibe that they shot the whole thing in, like, like an 80s kind of, you know, weird, you know, pop cultural uh, series of some sort and everything blurry. And I just thought, you know, I thought they did a great job. I love when they showed the animation of how they, they made the little car on the treadmill turn it around and how they made the thing. And I said, man, how did they do that? That was cool. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> incredible. Yeah. You know? Uh, yeah, guys, go to the go to the Dark Side of the Ring social media. I saw that they shared that there. Uh, you can watch how they actually made that happen. It's really, really fascinating. Yeah, no, they, they, those guys are super, and, and uh, you know they're they're doing some stories on some of my other friends. I, they got the piece coming out on JYD, I think, next week. Yes, and and, and I love Dog. He was somebody really special to me in Mid South that uh, kind of took me under his wing and. Uh, you know, great, great human being. 
Well, uh, you know, the reason I said that that what you were saying before about life after wrestling really kind of ties in perfectly is so I reached out to him a couple of days ago just to see if he had anything he'd like to say to you. And uh, what he told me was that he loved having the opportunity to learn your story and portraying you was just a huge honor for him. But also, unfortunately, right after shooting that show, he found out that he had two slip discs and a crush disc so that he so he had to retire from professional wrestling. Um, so portraying you was the last thing that you did. So, oh my goodness. Yes. So that statement that you made about life after wrestling and rising up and the impact that you can make on people, it's just, man, uh, it, it perfectly fitting for the gentleman that, that portrayed you in Dark Side of the Ring. Well, you ought to give me his information so I can reach out to him because that's, that's, very, that's very, I mean, it's very, very surreal for something like that to happen, especially portraying what he did. But uh, yeah, that's, phew, I mean, there is no easy, you know, people have said to me, oh, would you have felt better if you'd, you know, gone on to been the world's champion multiple times and blah, 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 blah. And I can tell you definitively that there's nothing more, that there's nothing that I could have accomplished that would make the day-to-day -day life that I live and the things that I, that I cope with every day better. You know, saying you're a 17 times world champion when you're, when, when now your your accomplishments are measured completely different, it it, it doesn't make it doesn't really make a difference. Uh, it, it's it's good that if you think about the fact that I started in January of 1980, and I I was really introduced to the world behind the scenes in October of of 79 before I made my way around there. I was almost my whole time with wrestling was encapsulated in almost seven years to the date. And so to have gone from, from there to there and, you know, had a tremendous feud with wrestling too in mid South and came in and got to wrestle the legendary Wahoo McDaniels who dropped the U S title to me in front of a sold out crowd in in Charlotte, North Carolina, you know, and to, to then finally reaching the epitome of performing in Norfolk Scope, where I grew up and close to Chesapeake, with two sets of grandparents in the stands, my mom and dad, sold out arena, Ric Flair for an hour in a steel cage. You know, those kind of things are like storybook things. And yeah. I experienced all that in a little capsule of time to to where I, you know, they say if you have, you know, one de career defining moment that people remember like Rick, Mick Foley getting thrown off the top of the cage. Mick, he's taken so many falls. Nobody will ever know. But when you think of him, you think about that moment, you know, yes. and, had, and I was fortunate enough to have moments with Rick that he withstood the, the test of time and the I quit match series with Tully that, that we've been talking about for 35 years now. And then the best of seven with uh, Nikita Koloff. So you know, I, I got enough subject matter in a very short period of time that it's uh, it, it's given me a lot of time to tell stories about for the last 35 years. Pretty incredible to think that something, you know, you you did all those years ago and in such a small period of time, to your point. I mean, you know, you're still being celebrated. People still come out and see you at, at your signings. Just really remarkable that uh, that you had such an impact in such a small window. Yeah, it's a blessing. And it was a season. But certainly when you become part of, you know, that family that I was was and still am part of it, uh, there's so many emotional ties and, you know, it's like a like a fabric being weaved together. You never totally depart yourself from it, uh, no matter no matter what. And, I, you know, I, I love one of these shows for that reason, to be able to you know, see my friends that are still with us and, uh, you know, celebrate you know, today, not just yesterday, but the fact that we're all still here in the game of life. It certainly uh, puts things into perspective and reminds you that, yep, wrestling and your career and the impact that you had being a part of, you know, really pop culture now, it's all important, but nothing as important as, as, as really what's going on behind the scenes in your life. Yeah, um, uh, now, there's a lot of reference on the episode to your possible ceiling in wrestling being close to Hulk Hogan's. Uh, you know, the marketing machine that the WWF had was just unparalleled at this time. So it does make me wonder, 
did you ever consider making a call to Vince to gauge interest? Well, I had an agenda. So, so I, my aspirations were to be the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion, period. And I, wasn't, I would not have veered from that path until I accomplished that goal. Ah. And now I've told people that, you know, had the Crockett's, you know, had, had money been mismanaged and Crockett still found themselves in a place that they couldn't keep the company going, uh, I have no doubt that I would have been talking to him because I wasn't cut out of that sheet of cloth to have done real well with the TBS uh, group of people that were running that company. Uh, I'd probably I'd created some newsworthy items that they wouldn't have enjoyed reporting on. <laughs> <laughs> so now I know that you mentioned that, you know, you wanted to be the champion and then, you know, kind of get out before you hit your late 30s. Um, do you think that Vince could have convinced you to uh, to hang around a little bit longer with some of the big money he was putting out? Yeah, I think that if I saw the opportunity and I and I can wrap my head around it, because I mean, frankly, we were going down a road depicting such violent encounters that that it, so. And when I started out, I was you know the the nice little arm drag, drop kick, baby face that you know did nice middle of the card, entertain you kind of thing. And I, and I realized soon, and that started in mid South that, you know, if you're a main event guy, they want to see you kick somebody's ass. They don't really want to, they don't really care about all the scientific stuff. And so I really enjoyed that. And I was really leaning hard into that direction of my career. I didn't want to turn heel, but I just wanted to be a rough, rougher, rugged, brawling type baby face character. And, uh, and, and it was it was more satisfying to me to depict that kind of fight than it was the, you know, like I'll say, for example, I'll take the direct opposite of that would it be Ricky Steamboat and Flair. One of the greatest matches of all time, They're poetry in motion, fluid, graceful, just unbelievable. But I would lean more heavily into the battles that I had with, with, with Wahoo and with Tully and with Nikita, they were just that. They were battles. So it was kind of the prelude to the Attitude Era. I'd have fit so well into that. My and, goodness. And, and you know, I mean, I you know, knock out the president of the NWA for reprimanding me on TV. Yes. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I, really, I, I really felt good in that kind of vibe, in that story. Maybe it, it's something I could have. You know, I could have done that longer probably than, uh, you know, all the, you know, crazy bumps and other things that other people had to do. It, it would have probably made my, my career have a longer chance of being successful, uh, you know, with the, with the style change. For sure. Now, it, I do also wonder, though, you know, do you think that if you had wound up going to Vince down the road? I mean, you know, we saw what he did when Barry Windham arrived after his, you know, a nice run with with Crockett where he turned him into the Widowmaker and that just didn't work. Dusty comes in and he puts him in polka dots. Uh, do you think that Vince could have done Magnum T.A. justice in his territory? I think he could have made me crazy big because the thing... The, the thing of it is, is he, so, I mean, so you had Hogan and you had Randy and, and Brett and, and of course, Shawn Michaels was still, you know, one of the best ever, but I'd have fit so well in that click and that groove of people and could have been a marketably different than all three of them and, and, you know, mix it up however they wanted to. Because the thing is my whole deal was the believability factor and with, and, and a, like a Bret Hart was like that too, but he was more still the scientific wrestler type, you know, contest type thing. Cause you know, he'd done something like that and I would have, you know, wanted to, you know, stomp him in the head or something. So, so it was like, I think it would have been a great compliment. And, and certainly if it was my decision and he was, it wasn't me trying to bail after, you know, something had gone sour with those people, you know, it, it's, it's always something else kind of go along with it. You know, I mean, when he got Dusty, you know, Dusty didn't have a plan B. So he kind of like, you know, made him the, tried to make him the whipping boy. 
And Dusty was so smart, he turned it around and got it over anyway. The polka dots became, you know, the deal. And yeah. I, I promise he, he made a lot of money with those polka dots, even if he didn't like them. But but anyway, yeah, I, I, I think that would certainly have been um, something on the horizon. Uh, because, again, even when Turner and put their machine behind it, they still didn't understand the industry. They didn't understand uh, the wrestling fan. And, uh, you know, I think had the Crockett's been able to partner with somebody that thought more globally and would understood, you know, how to take it from, you know, I mean, they felt like a national company. We were, I mean, we were wrestling. I wrestled in every major city in the United States because of the power of that television, TBS, but all the other things that go along with that help support the company and make more revenue for the the performers herself, they were missing out on a whole, a whole stream of things. It's, and, you know, it's just a shame because it was a, you know, family owned business and they truly cared about what their talent and uh, the best group of guys I've ever worked for in my life. I mean, David and I, you know, every time I see him, I go back in time and it's just like, you know, I never had one hard feeling ever, not one time with anybody in that group. I mean, it was, it was, Family, all from the word go. Oh, man. David Crockett, uh, one of the greatest guys in pro wrestling. If you haven't had an opportunity to meet him, go out of your way and, and talk to David because, God, what a what a wonderful human being. Um, and Arn Anderson says the same thing, though, where, you know, uh, he was like, hey, look, we were about as marketable as it got when it came to the Four Horsemen, and there was no marketing. Uh, they just did not take advantage of it, and it is it is what it is. But, yeah, man, interesting to think what Vince could have done. And you mentioned something earlier about you working with Bret Hart and we do have some fan questions, and, and I think that this one kind of ties in. Um, Matt Godfrey asks, is there a dream match that you wish could have happened? Would that have been Bret Hart? Bret would have been one, and, and I would have liked to work with Sean because Ooh. he just he, – he would have been good because he wasn't, he wasn't the biggest guy, you know, but he could go kind of like Tully. Tully was 220, but could go like a machine. I mean, yes. I've, never, I've, I've never worked with anybody in my career that could go as fast-paced for 30, 40, 45 minutes as Tully. I'm there ever. I had, to, I had to slow my game down with anybody else I worked with after that program because I was so used to him bumping and being back in my face so quick that – you know, to feed it because, you know, the roots coming off the joint and he knew how to get the most out of it. So, you know, having a, having somebody to do the dance with that's in great shape and can, can deliver that kind of excitement would have been, you know, been special. But, but, you know, ultimately the dream match for me would have been I, when I watched Hogan work as a heel, I said, I got it. I mean, that's, I mean, it's great that he's, you know, this phenomenon in the history of wrestling and all these things, but he was a really good heel. Yes. And I would have loved to work with him and him and that character as that heel. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he is amazing. My goodness, that would have been phenomenal. Not to mention, I mean, you mentioned Shawn Michaels and Brett. Holy smokes, just the opportunities, unbelievable. Um, a couple more listener questions, and I'll let you go, Magnum. Um, we've actually got one from Mag Megabyte Ronnie. Um, and by the way, you can follow him on Twitter, at Megabyte Ronnie, and that's M-E-G-A-B-Y-T-E, Ronnie, R-O-N-N-I-E. Um, and yeah, I asked him for one. He graciously obliged. He says, Magnum made a comment on the show about how he wanted to get out of wrestling early because he thought people wrestling in their 30s was weird. I'm curious if he still feels that way. And what does he think when he sees people wrestling into their thirties and forties on the independent level? Well, I had to be honest. I still, I mean, guys are in better shape today, you know, or can be, you know, much, you know, much longer and have, have uh, you know, a longer span of time where they look good in the ring, but, and, and you need some veteranish type people. But to me, I think 40 is still the ceiling for me. Um, I mean, I, I know I know a lot of people do things out of necessity and whatnot. But if I wanted to go get out of my head 
watching something. I, you know, I want to watch people that are that are able to go and you know, as far as your imagination will let it go. And I, th- I think when they, you start seeing that their physical limitations to what they're capable of doing, it kind of, you know, you don't want the people feeling like, oh, man, you should have seen him, you know, 10 years ago. He was blah, 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 blah. You know, I mean, I hate that I was 27 years old. That was too soon. But but honestly, you know, I had had the opportunity to drive a NASCAR at Charlotte Motor Speedway because of a, a whole bunch of events that happened in wrestling. And that was the closest thing to fulfilling that same feeling that I got from in the ring was driving that car mm. and it was mind boggling. And, uh, I had met Hal Needham that owned, uh, the, the, the school bandit car back in the day. And they were ready to send me off to driving school and let me have at it because that's a big marketing machine too. And wrestling and NASCAR, the, the fan base is, is pretty similar. And this was, uh, you know, you're too young to remember this stuff, but there was, this is back before, uh, before they had like the little baby face guys in, in, you know, they had a bunch of older guys uh, that were still racing and whatnot. And they were, they were looking for something to kind of bring that youth movement in, in the NASCAR. Same thing. I mean, it's a, it's business. And, uh, and, and I, like I said, I wanted to do that and, and have a little run with that. And, and then, you know, the Hollywood thing to me was that was in my mind, something you could do post in-ring work because that was Hollywood and you didn't have to take the bumps. You didn't have to do the things that you killed yourself doing in wrestling and, uh, you, and you got more than one take. So I was used to doing everything. Dusty said, Hey, can you do this? I can do it once. I'm going to go. <laughs> Somebody said I had to go do that 10 times. I might not want to sign up for it. <laughs> and hey, look, yeah, I mean, your theory is correct. I mean, we look at Sylvester Stallone. You know, he still does some action movie stuff. Uh, and, you know, it's, I, he's up over 70 now. And he still looks great, you know. So, you know, in that world, and because you know you're just going to be entertained, they can Hollywood magic things up and make them, you know, you know, make them look like what whatever they want to make them look like. But in that ring... And there's a whole lot between you and that crowd, and you don't want saggy skin and and uh, you know and, and ball spots on your head and stuff like that for people that are looking down from the cheap seats. <laughs> <laughs> a couple more, and we'll get out of here. Christopher Curtis asks uh, a couple of questions for Magnum. In your pursuit of your gimmick in the documentary, uh, mentioned all the different ideas before coming coming up with the motorcycle hero. In your opinion, which one of these ideas was the worst? Also, do you recall anything Dusty Rhodes might have told you about the business that really stuck with you? So first, let's talk about any bad gimmicks that were thrown your way. The the worst was like so in the mid eighties there was a like this punk rock clothing gimmick that came out where which the Rock and Roll Express embraced. They looked like they should have been dressed like that. Yep. I was two forty, and and I looked like a clown, you know, dressed up in in, in some of that stuff, and. Uh, so that was probably the most awkward. That that didn't last for a couple of weeks, and, and besides, that wasn't right. But but really, the funny thing was, is Ernie Ladd was booking at the time, and Bill wasn't really being hands on. And it was when I was getting ready to leave that the character came out because Dusty and I talked on the phone once a week the whole time I was there, and I told him what was going on. I said, "Man, this just didn't get it." And and he's the one that said, and he knew I I came from a, a biker ish type background and I like motorcycles. He said, go get you, go get you a black leather jacket, get your Harley, come back down here to Florida. We're going to make you the lone wolf Magnum TA and let you ride at in the towns. And man, I went and I went down to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, riding with Jim Duggan. And I went in and bought a brand new Harley Davidson, got me a jacket. I rode it to the town that we were going to work. And it was like the magic. It just, the people all of a sudden identified you know, with me completely differently. Uh, I walked in with that leather jacket on and the, even the boys in the dressing room were like, you know what, what's up with this? This is, this is really cool. And, uh, it, it, it flipped the script completely, you know, just in a nanosecond. Man, the lone wolf Magnum TA, that's about as cool as it gets, especially with the biker gimmick. Damn. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, you know, as soon as Bill 
you know, heard the, 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 the tidal wave that that caused uh, the emotion. He, he said, you're not going anywhere. I got big plans for you. <laughs> <laughs> the Bill, if nothing else, he is a very smart man. So he, he knows opportunity when he sees it. Um, how about that second question, though? Anything uh, Dusty might have told you about the business or said to you that uh, has, has stuck with you, maybe even to this day? You know, it's funny, but Dusty and I, we, we talked about ideas and dreams and things that we were aspiring to do. He was like writing screenplays in his mind all the time. He actually wrote a screenplay for me that he was going to shop that because he, he wanted me to be this leading man in this movie that he's going to produce. Wow. And, and he had this animated, he, I had this animated character. I think it was like a mouse or something. His name was Gus. And he was supposed to be like my, my bad, bad conscience. So I, I would always have Gus popping up as I was driving around the country, doing different things, trying to lure me into trouble. And get me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, this is mid eighties. You know, we had Howard the Duck back then. We had some pretty out there movies, but uh, you know, but he was always thinking cinematically about the things that we did. Like for him, an event was like shooting a movie, and he was thinking about it. You know, all these different nuances and things that he wanted to go with, and that's why he was so creative. I mean, I was there the night he dreamed up the Midnight Rider, and you know, we came up with the James Boys and. And he started thinking, talking about the Great American Bash in this series and mixing country music and with with wrestling and just uh, the the creative flow that came out of his mind. It was just nothing that he thought in his head he thought was impossible to accomplish. He, if he could dream it and say it and verbalize it and explain it, then then we by hook or crook somehow we're going to make all this happen. And uh, he's talked about you know hooking the end of that lightning bolt and taking a ride, and if that one starts going down. You hook another one and go with that that <laughs> bolt. You know? it's, uh, you're still moving up. Man, what an innovator! What a brilliant mind Dusty Rhodes is, was, and and you know will be considered, you know, and for all time. And let me say, I, I know an awful lot of people that would spend good money to have a Dusty Rhodes screenplay in their possession. So, oof. Mm. Oh. you know, you know, I I hadn't I hadn't seen Dusty. I, well, I saw Dusty about six months before he passed. He passed away on my birthday. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And, but so I went to Tampa for the service and he always talked to me about how much he enjoyed working with the kids. He called them his kids at, at the developmental you know, center there. And there were so many young people there, Seth Rollins. I mean, just on and on and on that are, you know, become megastars in the industry that he touched all of them. You know, he gave them, that that the dusty, you know, whatever it is that 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 brushed off on them and helped them find their inner self and find their voice and be able to express a character, give them the confidence to do that. And he was able to do that later in life. And so is for as big a performer as he was, the people that he positively influenced, I don't even know how you you quantify how many of those might be, but he he was a huge positive influence on a whole generation. Performance. My goodness, you know, a lot of people uh, owing a gratitude of thanks to Dusty. Certainly, I'm, you know, I, I know that all of us fans are thankful. And and let me say, Magnum, I'm thankful to you for joining us here and and uh, uh, filling in for Jake this week. I mean, what an honor! I'm I'm so thrilled to have you on here. And it sounds like you've got an awful lot of stories left to tell. So, you know, sometime <laughs> in the near future, I'd, I'd certainly love to have you on again. Well, it'd be my pleasure, and uh, you you've made this very pleasant, and I, I thank you, and very accommodating, and. Uh, I just appreciate the fans. What what thing can you do in life that have impacted so many people and they and they still continue to bring back those memories over and over again? It's the way you make people feel that makes them remember you. I couldn't put it any better. And uh, man, let me say, fans, if you would like to give back to Magnum TA or, you know, if you'd like to get a cool signed piece of merchandise from Magnum TA, uh, there's a really easy way to do it here coming up. Am I right? There he is. Look, my my my, uh, my new Powertown wrestling figure with the U.S. belt, uh, my and which I'm a partner in this this company, along with uh, Greg Gagne and Steve Rosenthal, and uh, you know, I've 
we've we, we were two years birthing this series one in this uh, this company, and uh, I can tell you yet another venture and a chapter in my life, but very very unique bunch of people that I've got to work with and be part of, and uh, and we got some exciting things coming down the pike. But yes, I'm going to be offering some people uh, an opportunity that didn't get a figure to get a figure because these were all pre-sold and limited edition. I've got a little private stock that I'm going to open up for, for sale coming up at high spots. Yes. That's coming up on July 13th with high spots, go to highspots.com so that you can get more details and information. But I also know that on your social media, I know that you're active there and it'll be posted there. Um, if you haven't seen these action figures, they are unbelievable. Such great detail. Um, and yeah, uh, to what Magnum just said, if you miss that opportunity, here's another one. So do not miss it again. Go to highspots.com, get more, more details and information and get your hands on one of these unbelievable action figures. Magnum, again, thank you so much, my friend. And uh, all the best to you as always. I can't wait to have another chat with you here down the road. And give my best to Jake. He's a, he's a special guy. Yes, sir. I certainly will. And we will catch you fans next time right here on the Snake Pit.